morning. Uh, today we are going to be part two of our message last week, uh, talking about the tenacity of God, uh, and in particular, tenacity of God's grace and of his gospel. Um, and chapter 16 uh, follows right on the heels for you scholars of chapter 15 which is one of the most pivotal chapters in the book of Acts. And for those of you who haven't been with us, let me catch you up to speed with what's going on and what's happening. Uh, The book of Acts was written by a doctor named Luke, uh, who was commissioned by a man named Theophilus to write an accurate and historical and orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Luke did that by interviewing people and dealing with eyewitness accounts and firsthand written documents of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And we have that in our Bibles. It's called called The Gospel According to Luke. And Luke continued on with his work for Theophilus, and he wrote a second volume entitled The Acts. Sometimes it's called The Acts of the Apostles, The Acts of the Holy Spirit. And what the book of Acts is about, it is about the ministry of the risen Jesus, all that Jesus continues to do now through his people, the church, empowered by his spirit. And to catch you up on, on where we are in, in chapter 16, I'll give you a little bit of the beginning and then we'll, we'll zoom all the way through to chapter 16 so that you can kind of get your bearings and make sense of what's going on as, as Jesus has risen from the grave and, and reappeared to his followers and his disciples. They had an interesting question for him. In chapter 1, verse 6, his followers said, Jesus, when will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They were curious. Now now the Messiah has come and you have shown yourself to be him through your defeat of death and of Satan and sin itself. And you have been raised from the dead by God. Certainly now you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel. How are you going to do that and when are you going to do that? And, and notice that their, their question was of a particular form. They were, they were curious about how Jesus is going to resolve this thing. Theologians will, will call this a question of eschatology. And I thought it was interesting that, that Jesus didn't say, just hold on a second. Now... I'm going to send you some guys in a couple thousand years. They're going to write some books. And they're going to explain how certain people are going to be left behind and certain people aren't going to be left behind. And at that point, you'll know what's going to actually happen. That's, that's not actually what Jesus said, is it? He didn't say, wait, I'm going to send you Tim LaHaye and Kirk Cameron. And then they'll get it all straight for you. His answer to their question was a pointer towards his purpose and towards his mission. Look at verse 7. This is what he said. He said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And here's what I'm going to tell you. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here's my answer. You're going to be witnesses. You're going to testify to something that you have seen, something that you have heard. And because of the nature of what it is that you've seen and what you have heard, something that you have experienced... And something that has transformed you and it's continuing to transform you, namely the work of Jesus Christ, namely the work of himself, namely the work of his life, his death, his resurrection, and his Holy Spirit, and his promise to return in eternity in the presence of God forever. That's what you are going to explain. You are going to be my witnesses to the reality of that. But the only way that that announcement actually does people any good is if they actually hear about it. Martin Luther He said it wouldn't matter if Jesus had died a thousand times if no one actually ever heard about it. And here, in his answer to his question, Jesus is giving his disciples the responsibility to be witnesses, to make the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done known, not only to their friends, but to the ends of the earth. And ultimately, that should be for us as we read that and as we're reminded of that going through the book of Acts, that should be for us a a game changer. I mean, really, you should take 
pause and stop for a second and think about the reality of that message in the midst of your confusion as to what do you think you should do with the rest of your life if you're in college and coming out of college or in midlife and wondering what it's all been about. As you wrestle with, what, what am I supposed to do with my life? How does my life fit into all this? He, he's answered the question for you. This is what your life is to be about. As a follower of Christ, I have clarified for you, Jesus said, what your life is to be for and what you are to spend your time doing. You are to be my witnesses. And all that you do, wherever you are and wherever I have sovereignly placed you, you are to bear witness to the reality of my life, death, resurrection, and the transforming power of my Holy Spirit. That's what he actually said. And it's only good news if people actually hear it. As Ray was explaining the realities and the importance of the college campuses, I I was reminded this week, and I'm glad he did that, of of something called the Joshua Project. The Joshua Project is a nonprofit that does statistical research on all the different people groups and nations around the world. And you can go to their website and get information about people groups and nations and and help you to pray for them. But they do statistical research on on the spread of the gospel uh, around the globe. And, and where different nations are and hearing the gospel and where gospel witnesses are and where churches are and where people, who don't have, where people exist who have never heard the gospel. And, and the Joshua Project says this, that a third of our world claims to be Christian. And that means at least 4.5 billion people are acknowledgeably apart from Jesus Christ. And of that 4.5 billion, at least 2.6 billion have little to no access to the gospel. Some 2.6 billion people have little to no current access to the gospel. And 4.5 billion, acknowledgeably, are not followers of Christ. And here's what scares me when we hear about the college campuses and you, and you hear about the fact that they're probably an estimated, and we can get the statistics going into the next school year, some 50 plus thousand college students just in the city of Richmond alone. When you hear these numbers and you hear these statistics, here's what scares me. We hear them and they just sound like statistics. We we fail oftentimes to hear that when we hear 4.5 billion, when we hear 2.6 billion, when we hear 50,000 just in our own city, when we read the statistics about the greater Richmond population in and of itself, that acknowledgeably, self-admittedly, three quarters of the greater Richmond population does not follow Jesus Christ self-admittedly on our latest census. When we hear those numbers, they sound like statistics and we fail to remember that those statistics represent real people. Moms and dads, just like you. Sons and daughters, just like you. People just like you all around the world that have the same hurts, the same fears, the same pains, the same struggles. Created by God in his image, just like you and I. And the prospect of them spending eternity apart from God is no less frightening for them than it is for you. My fear is we hear this commission of Jesus, this calling of Jesus, declaring to his people that we are to be his witnesses here and wherever he sends us to the ends of the earth, bearing the truth of the reality of the transforming power of the gospel. And we don't let that sink in deep enough. Well, all around us, some 4.5 billion around the world don't know when they take their next breath. And apart from having heard and believed in what we call the gospel, they will spend eternity apart from the presence of God. This is what Jesus was commissioning his people to do, to go, to bear witness, to not only say but live in such a way 
that bears witness to the transforming power of what he has done through his son. This is how he answers their question to how he is going to bring restoration to his kingdom. It's going to be through his people empowered by his spirit. And then he fulfills that promise as he sends his Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 upon his people. And the Holy Spirit begins to empower the church in Jerusalem. And you hear the story of the church in Jerusalem being established. And you see their persecution and you see how the gospel perseveres through that persecution. And how God sovereignly ordains that persecution and then scatter his people so that his people begin to leave Jerusalem. And we start to see people begin to get saved outside out of Jerusalem. And we start to see this mission of Jesus take shape through his people who are empowered by his spirit. Ultimately, we find in the middle of the Acts chapter, I think six or, or seven, maybe it is, or eight, uh, the apostle Paul, then Saul, the greatest persecutor of the church, hearing and believing the message of the resurrected Christ from himself, from Jesus himself, and Paul being changed. And then we hear the story of Paul beginning to be sent out by the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit to go and to continue the mission that Jesus has sent his people on. And we hear the story of the Apostle Paul and and Barnabas and now a new missionary team in Acts chapter 16, going to places that have never heard the message of the gospel, going to places where there has been no gospel witness and proclaiming the gospel and seeing people saved. And in Acts chapter 16, that was a fast forward from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, what we're going to see is the story of the planting and the developing of a church in a town called Philippi, which will ultimately become the beachhead for the church in Europe. I mean, from this town in Philippi and from the three conversions that we're going to read about in Acts chapter 16 and from the church that's planted in Philippi, a beachhead will be formed in Europe. And from this place in Acts chapter 16, 17, and 18, we will see the gospel be, be, begin to take root in, in what we know now as Europe. So this is the beginning of a very, very, very important part of not only church history, but world history because it was the gospel and as it was preached throughout Europe that ultimately began to transform the entire Roman Empire. So, Acts chapter 16. Here we go. Verses 1 through 5, Paul just picks up a new missionary partner. We talked about this last week. Paul and Barnabas split, and at some point we'll go back and we'll talk about the nature of that split and the nature of God's grace in the midst of that split. But as they split, what had been such a powerful missionary team now becomes two. Paul takes Silas and Barnabas takes John Mark. And as Paul and Silas leave... They pick up a new man. They pick up Timothy. And they begin delivering the good news that had come down from the Jerusalem church that the Gentiles did not have to be circumcised to be members of the church. That God's grace through Jesus was sufficient to be a part of the church. And Acts 5 says, verse 5 in chapter 16 says, they strengthened in faith. The church is strengthened in faith. And they increased in numbers. And then after 16, verses 6 through 10, we read the story of Paul taking his missionary team on a particular journey, Paul has plans. Paul wants to go north, and the Holy Spirit steps in the way and says, you can't go north. And Paul wants to go south, and the Holy Spirit steps in the way and says, you can't go south. And ultimately, as Paul was sleeping, he had a vision. A vision from a man from Macedonia, what we'll know of as Europe now. And that man said to Paul, listen, as a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man from Macedonia was standing there. It's verse 9. And this is what he says. He says, come over to Macedonia and help us. Verse 10 says, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul had a plan. It was a good plan. It was a plan to go and preach the gospel and to strengthen churches. It was a plan that made much of Jesus. It was a plan that would cost Paul a great deal. It was a good plan, but God had a different plan. God had a much bigger plan. 
And I don't want to belabor the point. Maybe we'll come back one day and talk about this and, and how God does this in our own lives many times. But what I want you to see in this is how did Paul respond? Paul responded to God's direction and Paul responded to God's plan and obedience. Now, we have no record. Maybe one day we'll find out in eternity it played out different. But Luke did not record that Paul sought to kick against the plan of the Holy Spirit. No, Paul, you can't go north. No, I'm going to find a way to go north. That can't be the Holy Spirit. That's just opposition. Let me, let me unbind and loose and, and cast out whatever is keeping me from going north. No, Paul submitted to the direction of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, he received a vision from a man in Macedonia, from Europe. He said, come and, and preach the gospel to us. And Paul said, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go and we're going to preach the gospel. And the revolution of the Roman Empire now is going to kick off in a little town called Philippi. And as we read this, I want you to note something new has happened in the text. We now have the inclusion of the word we. Paul has a new partner in his journeys, and it's Luke, the writer of this book. We're now going to get actual firsthand account of what's going on. Verse 11, chapter 16. So setting sail from Troas, we made, we made a direct voyage to Semothrace, I guess. And the following day to Neapolis, verse 12, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. There we remained in this city for some days. Now, a little bit about the town of Philippi. It was the leading district of the area. Do you know the history of Philippi? It's really interesting, but it's kind of important to what's going to go on in this story. Philippi was named after Philip of Macedon. You know who Philip of Macedon was? He was the dad of Alexander the Great. And when he conquered this land, he actually made this a fortified city. He brought in military provisions and fortified the city of Philippi, and it was ultimately named after him. But in world history, it kind of carries a, a little more cloud. And, and what happened in, in world history actually plays into what's going to go on in this text. The Philippi was actually the place where Brutus, Brutus and Cassius fought who? Mark Antony and Octavian. Remember that? World history scholars? And what actually happened? Mark Anthony and Octavian overwhelmed the Brutus and Cassius, paving the way for Octavian to become emperor and changed his name to what? Caesar Augustus. Philippi is the place where that actually happened. And when Octavian became emperor and changed his name to Caesar Augustus, he declared that Philippi would become a Roman colony. So Philippi up there in Europe now has the stance and the rights and the privileges of all of the colonies of the Roman Empire. And that's going to get important in what happens to Paul and his team as they land in Philippi. And it's also just to remind some of you, Philippi was the place where this church was planted, whereby Paul would later write a letter of encouragement back to this church that many of you have been memorizing since January and are probably wrapping up some point this week or next week for those of you that have kept with it. Um, that letter was written to this church that we're going to look at, begin, look at Paul establish this particular week. And as we continue through Acts chapter 16, <clears throat> excuse me, what we're going to see are, are three conversions uh, of three very different types of people. And we're going to see the tenacity of God's grace, the tenacity of the gospel, overwhelm three very different types of opposition. And as a good friend of mine, J.D. Greer, has pointed out, and I promised him I would mention his name in this because he doesn't get enough attention from people these days. Um, and he said he'd listen, so that's for you, J.D. Um, as he has pointed out in teaching Acts chapter 16, these three conversions of these very three different types of people overcoming these three different forms of opposition in their heart also point out three different types of people or are related to three different types of people in our culture today through which we need to pray for the gospel and the tenacity of God's grace 
to overwhelm. So we're going to look at those three things today. Three conversions, three different types of people, tenacity of God's grace, overcoming three different forms of opposition. And as we do that, I want to point out in the time that we've got some ways that we can pray. As Easter is approaching, I want to point out some ways as we look at these people that we can pray for different people who are in our lives. Different people who I pray by God's grace you could have the opportunity to speak to, to share the gospel with, maybe to invite next week. And as we do that, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what we're going to do next week. Is that fair enough? Here's the Easter message so that you can read ahead, so that you can pray. Next week, we're going to look at the similarity of the different types of people in the different places where Paul is going to preach, not only in Philippi, but ultimately in a place called Thessalonica, in Athens, and then in a place called Corinth. We're going to look at how similar those people are to the people that make up our society today, and then we're going to look at how Paul delivers the same message to all three of those places through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So read Acts 16, 17, and 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's what we're going to ultimately boil down next week for Easter. So you can go ahead and pray and know what we're going to do. Fair enough? All right. Acts 16, the first thing. The tenacity of God's grace over closed hearts. Look at verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we, Paul, Luke, and their team, went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed that there was a place for prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. Now, something you should know. It took 10 men together to form a synagogue. So when Luke records that they came into the town and they didn't go to the synagogue to preach, they went down to the river because they supposed that there'd be a place for prayer there. The first thing he knows is that there weren't 10 Jewish men there enough to form a synagogue. So he went to the river and they would go to the river because they needed the water to deal with some of the purification rites and rituals that were a part of worship in the Jewish culture. So you can know that when you went into a town and there wasn't a synagogue, if there were believers, they would be somewhere down by the river, not in a van, but down by the river. When he arrived, I'm just trying to keep some of you up to speed. When he arrived and he found these women praying by the river, Paul would have naturally assumed the position of a a teacher, of of a rabbi, and he would have been the one then to lead the prayers and, and to talk about the scriptures. So this is what's happening. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So first thing we know about Lydia is that she's a professional woman. We don't know if she... Had the dye, the purple dye, if she actually dyed the goods, if she was a go-between between the dyer of the goods and the merchant of the goods, we don't know exactly what her role is, but we know that she was a professional woman, and most likely because of the nature of her being a a person of dye, of purple dye and of purple goods, that was the color of royalty, that she probably was a a lucrative professional woman. She probably did all right for herself, and and we know that she's a God-fearer, Luke records. That means that she was a Gentile who had heard of the God of the Jewish people, the God of the Israelites, and who had wanted to know more about the God of the Israelites and become one who would follow the the customs of the Jewish people, that she was now a fear of the one true God, but she was not a Jew, and she had not heard of the good news of Jesus, but she was a a God-fearer, so we know in, in part that she was a religious woman. So we have a professional, successful, religious woman who's down by the river praying, and the Apostle Paul comes, and he begins to, to preach, and this is what happens. The Lord opened up her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And, and so here's what I want you to see in all of that, and we could spend a whole week talking about Lydia. The one thing I want you to see as we're moving towards Easter is that it was God himself who opened Lydia's heart. Very simple. As the Apostle Paul began to tell her of the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done, 
as he would open up the scriptures and show how they pointed to Jesus. And he preached what we call the gospel. It was God who actually opened Lydia's heart. It was the gracious work of God. It was the tenacity of his, of his grace and of his goodness that did what Paul could not do. Paul could not talk Lydia's heart open. I mean, Paul was not smart enough, witty enough. There was nothing that Paul could do to open up Lydia's heart, to not only hear the gospel, but then receive it, to then take it in and believe it and lay her trust and her hope in the person and work of Jesus. Paul could not do that. Only God could do that. And God did that very thing. God opened Lydia's heart. What I want you to see is that in the opening of Lydia's heart, what you get is a beautiful portrayal of the tenacity, the no quit of God's grace and of God's goodness. I mean, because if we're honest, we all think, probably like Lydia, that we're naturally good and, and nice people. I think to some degree, we, we all think that we're nice people. And the testimony of the Bible is that that's not true of any of us. That every single one of us is born in sin. That when we're born, our hearts are actually born dead to the realities of the goodness of God in the face of Christ. That we are born sinful. And born in sin, we stand as enemies to God. And many of us have fallen prey to the, to the lie, to the thought that just naturally we're actually nice people. We're just good people. We miss the fact that we were created by God to not only worship him, but to enjoy him deeply, to find him as satisfying. But if you are honest and you take just a quick glance at your life, just a quick glance at your life over the last two hours, and you're honest with yourself, you would be able to testify to the truthfulness that that's not actually what you do. That day in and day out, Moment after moment, you don't find God as all satisfying. You don't find him as all sufficient. And the beauty of God opening up Lydia's heart is the good news that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Hard hearts are not too much for God's grace to overwhelm. God has opened up Lydia's heart. He has to do for her what she can't do for herself. For herself. And here's what I want to do. Just a little bit of time. Here's what I want to do. I want you to pray. And here's how I want you to pray this week. If you're a Christian, I want you to pray and I want you to recognize that there are times when your heart freezes over. I mean, there are times when the temptations of sin and the deceitfulness of sin work their way into your heart and into your mind and into your soul in such a way that your heart actually begins to freeze over. Jonathan Edwards would talk often about how our hearts were like a bucket of water that was set outside in the dead of winter. With enough awareness to the elements and awareness to the sinfulness in inside ourselves, our hearts would begin to freeze and a layer of ice would begin to form. And it takes the work of the Holy Spirit himself to come and to break that ice on our hearts to break open the hardness of our hearts, to again sense and taste and revel in the goodness of God. And so this week, I, I want you to pray, where is my heart beginning to harden over? And I want you to pray, and I want you to ask God to do what only God can do by His Spirit, to break the hardness of your heart open, to open up your heart where it has been closed. And for those of you who aren't Christians, I want to let you know this. This is my prayer for you this morning and every single day from this point. It's that God would do what only God can do and he would open up your heart. 
He would open up your heart to not only hear the good news of his son Jesus, but to taste it and to see it for what it is, to cherish it for what it is, to receive it by faith through God's grace. That's, that's my point. That's my prayer for you. That's, I'm just going to be honest with you. Right now, as I'm talking, that's what I'm praying because I can't talk you into it. I mean, if I could talk you into it, someone else could talk you out of it. It takes the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do, and that's what I'm praying for you. And for those of you, as you get ready for Easter, you want to pray for your friends and pray for your family. Pray, pray that God would open up their hearts to see the beauty in the face of Jesus, to hear the good news of God, and to receive it by faith. Pray that God would open up their hearts like he did Lydia's. This is how you can pray for people that you love. So think, who are the Lydia's in your life right now? Who are you praying for? Who are you asking God to open up their hearts? You can write them down on your bulletin. But this is one way that you can pray for them. Lydia's, Lydia's are a lot like the good southern religious people in our culture today. Lydia's are like those people who have, who have been in church, they've been around church, they know it's probably good to go to church. But the reality of the goodness of the gospel is foreign to them. Lydia's can, can be reached, they can be touched, they can be brought into the church and the goodness of God through the preaching of the gospel, through services like this, through Bible studies. So think about the people in your life who you could be praying for that are like Lydia and pray that God open up their heart. And here's what I'll ask. We did something this week or last week or maybe the week before that we've actually never done before in the history of this church coming up to Easter. We thought we've been here, what'll well, be almost three years in May. It'll be three years since we had our first service here. And we've never really done anything to let people know that we were here. We went probably the first nine months before we ever put a banner out front. So you actually had to know where the school was if you were going to find us. We've never actually done anything to let people know we were here. So we thought, you know, for Easter this year, we're going to have two services so that people can bring people. How about we let the area around Holton know that we're actually, that we're actually going to be here for Easter? So we actually had a mailer sent out to the radius of one mile around Holton. Do you know how many individual housing units that went to this week that will get it by Monday or Tuesday? 6,000. In one mile around this building, 6,000 addresses are going to receive some type of information about us being here on Sunday. It's nothing really provocative or slick. It's just information to let them know that we're actually here. So this week, why don't you pray for the 6,000 homes that are going to receive some kind of information about us being here next week for Easter and pray that God would open up the hearts of people like Lydia, those who are God-fearers, who believe in God, they know he's real, their consciences and their souls have been pricked by his reality, but they've never heard, heard or believed in the good news of Jesus. Pray that God would open up their heart and that that information would compel them and that God would draw them to be here with us next week. That's the first conversion, the conversion of Lydia and the, the tenacity of God's grace really overclosed hearts, but we're going to keep going. Verse 16, now we're going to see the tenacity of God's grace in the gospel over what we can call oppression or, or exploitation. Look at verse 16. As we, remember Paul and Luke now, this is eyewitness, we're going to the place of prayer, so they're, content on, they're, 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 they're intent on winning people. Lydia's responded. She's believed. Her household has believed. They're going to go back. They're going to keep preaching. They want to win more people. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, and she brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So here, here's the second person we're going to see the gospel transform and the tenacity of God's grace overwhelm something of, of a sinfulness or a struggle in her own heart. It's a, it's a slave girl. And she's actually the anti-Lydia. 
I mean, she's the antithesis of Lydia. We've got Lydia, a professional woman, a a seller of purple goods, a dyer of purple goods, of of royal colors, a, a wealthy professional woman whose name we actually know. And now we've got this slave girl, most likely brought in from another country, another area. She's made a slave by her owners. We don't even know her name. She's property. She's treated as such and she's seen as such. She's the opposite of Lydia. And what we know is that she's possessed by a spirit. A spirit that gives her the capacity to speak of the future, to give accurate predictions of the future. And we know they were accurate because her owners made a lot of money off of her. If she was wrong, they wouldn't have made a lot of money, right? If she couldn't actually tell what was going to happen, she wouldn't actually bring them fortune, would she? The text actually says that this was a a woman, and Luke uses a word that was possessed by a, a spirit of python, a python, the snake. And how many, how many mythology people do we have in here? Anybody that loved world history? Mythology? Man, you've got to read the Greek myths. Great stuff. The Oracle of Delphi. Ever heard of the Oracle of Delphi? The Oracle of Delphi was believed to have been able to accurately predict the future. But the Oracle of Delphi was guarded by a giant python such that you couldn't get to it until who came along? Five people raised their hand. Apollo. Apollo came along and he slayed the python that guarded the Oracle of Delphi. And he made possible the the opportunity for people to come to the Oracle of Delphi to hear accurate predictions of their life and of the future. So Luke uses this word that this woman was actually possessed by the spirit of python, which in this culture meant she had the capacity by a spirit to predict the future. And I just want to make a note. There are some people that you will read today who who say that even God can't tell what's going to happen down the road. That even God doesn't know what's going to happen in the next minute, the next hour, the next day, the next week, the next year. That God is in heaven responding to the circumstances we find ourselves in and the decisions that we make. And I just want you to know that in nowhere, but in particular here, can stand up to the test of Scripture. Here, there was even another power that had the capacity to look and tell the future. How much more so the God who created all things. So just a note. There are some people who want to tell you that's not possible if by even God himself. Luke, the writer of Holy Scripture, is going to tell you it's, it's more than possible. It's a dead set guarantee that the God who created all things knows exactly what's going to happen. Not only in the next minute, but in the next hour, in the next week, in the next year. But this woman, this slave girl, she's possessed by a spirit, oppressed by evil, and she has the capacity to predict the future, and she's making people money. They're exploiting her for that power. Look at verse 17. She followed Paul and the team. She's crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Now, I don't know why Paul let her do it for a long time. And I don't think it's wrong to say that I think he took the advertising that it brought him. I mean, the Apostle Paul was intent on preaching the gospel to those who had never heard. And he's got this woman that everybody knows has the power to predict the future, telling them that this man knows the way of salvation, that they're servants of the Most High God. And with her advertisement, people were going to be curious about what he was going to say. So I think at some point, for some period of time, 
the Apostle Paul was content to allow her to kind of tag along and antagonize. And, and what she's done here is consistent with what we find in the gospel records of whenever a demon or someone who was oppressed or possessed by a demon, what would happen when Jesus showed up on the scene? The demons were always the first to recognize who Jesus was and what he was called and sent to do. The demons were never confused about who Jesus was. They always knew. And so here's this woman. She sees the Apostle Paul and she begins to proclaim to people who are around this is a servant of the Most High God. And they can tell you. They're going to accurately explain the way of salvation. And now, listen to what the Apostle Paul does. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, I would have, again, man, I wish Luke was not so brief, turned to the Spirit and said, notice, man, he did not get on this girl. I mean, notice, he, his annoyance was ultimately not at this slave girl. But he turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And at that very hour, it came out. No ritual, no dramatic show, no incantation, no statement that had to be made, no dance that had to be done, no cloth that had to be prayed over, nothing. In the name of Jesus, yes, the most high God, come out. Nothing was gone. And in an instant, that girl who had known nothing but oppression and known nothing but exploitation, by the power of Jesus, the risen Jesus, and the power of his name, and the power of God himself, set that girl free. In an instant, what she had known was no more. No longer was she oppressed by this evil spirit. And no longer was she going to be exploited by other people for what that spirit had enabled her to do. Look at verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Notice there was no we passage there. They seized Paul and Silas. Somehow Luke didn't get dragged along for this one. And they brought him into the marketplace before the rulers. You know, any, any human with any level of decency would have looked at what happened to this girl in the name of Jesus and had at least an ounce of compassion, an ounce of joy, what had been so oppressive and so ruling is now gone. But instead, these men were after gain. And instead of joy and compassion for what happened to this girl, they're enraged because their source of revenue was gone. And so they dragged Paul and Silas into the marketplace to try them. And what my friend J.D. pointed out so eloquently as we come up to Easter and we think about the gospel going forward in this city is that this girl represents for us in our own time and in our own place the countless numbers of people who ultimately in our mind represent those statistics that are oppressed and exploited. There are countless numbers of people in this very city who are oppressed spiritually and oppressed physically and exploited in reality for someone else's profit and someone else's gain. And these people, like this slave girl, they're not going to come to our Bible studies. They're not going to come to our Sunday services. They can't. They might not even be able to get here, nonetheless be allowed to get here. They can't get here. But that does not stop the tenacity of God's grace and the tenacity of the gospel as it is lived out through his people who go to them. These slave girls in our city and in our world are going to hear the gospel and taste the freedom from oppression and exploitation as God's people 
go into those places. As we go in and speak, and as we go in and live, and as we go in and fight, they'll experience the reality of the freedom of the gospel. In an instant, no more oppression, no more exploitation. So we've got Lydia, the God-fearer, the slave girl, the oppressed and the exploited. And now we're going to come to our third conversion in Acts chapter 16. The third is a Philippian jailer we're about to meet. Now this Philippian jailer would have been an educated man, probably from the ruling middle class of Rome. He probably represents best for us today a skeptical observer, someone who is aware of the church, aware of God, maybe aware of some of the claims, but is skeptical about them. Stands back at a distance, not really sure what difference they could, should, or actually do make. We're about to see how the gospel deals with this. Watch this nasty of God's grace begin to not only open this man's heart, but set him free. Verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of gone was gained, they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged him into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering a jailer to keep them safe. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into stocks. So they've been beaten, they've been humiliated, they've been falsely tried, and they've been thrown deep into the prison. And verse 25, some of your translations will say, but... I love that. But around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Paul and Silas weren't crying. They weren't frustrated. They weren't complaining. They were praying, and they were singing hymns. In the midst of all that they were experiencing, they were expressing joy and satisfaction, and every prisoner in that prison heard them. What were they thinking? Really, what, what was going on in their brains? What was going on in the prisoners' minds when this was happening? Verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and he saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. And I want you to let this man off the hook. This was actually an act of honor. This wasn't cowardice. This man was substituting himself in the place of those that he had supposed he lost. Roman code, Justinian code, we talked about it before in Acts, would require any soldier, any guard who was guarding a prisoner, if they were to lose them, they were to suffer the fate of the man they lost. So this man was acting in honor. He was replacing, substituting himself in the place of those that he had lost. He thought the people were gone, and he saw the doors open. He grabbed his sword. He was going to die. Verse 28, but Paul cried out in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. Just a few more seconds. And that man would have spent eternity apart from the living God. But notice the tenacity and the timing of God's grace. Verse 29, the jailer called for the lights and he rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you in your household. Some want to say that he was just scared. That really wasn't a genuine question, that in the fear of the moment, this just came out. But I don't think that's what's happening. All the prisoners was there. All the prisoners, all the prisoners were there. 
Nothing was going to happen to him. He wasn't going to pay any price. And no doubt he was familiar with the girl's story and why these men were in prison. That they were servants of the Most High God and that they knew the way of salvation. And then here they are. This happens and they're set free. And here they are, not only singing and worshiping, but staying in the prison. I think this man was quickened in his spirit. And I think he understood exactly what he was asking. What must I do to be saved? And in this moment, God not only blew open the doors to that prison, he not only blew open those iron gates that held Paul and Silas in them, but he blew open the doors to this man's heart. And I think he knew exactly what he was saying. What must I do to be saved? What was Paul's answer? From now on, treat the prisoners well. Respect your boss. Go to temple. Say your prayers, eat your vitamins, whatever those things are. Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you trust in Christ and Christ alone, never again do you have to fear the wrath of God. Not just a nebulous belief, though. In Jesus, the only name by which men can be saved. Verse 32 says he believed, and Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to him to clarify exactly what they were meaning. You can guarantee that and to all who were in his house. As you look back at that moment, for that jailer, this experience, this near escape, I mean, his own life within seconds of ending at his own hand, on his own sword, that had to be one of the most terrifying moments of his entire life. Yet at the same time, at the same time, it was the most profound moment in his entire life. At that moment, through what God did in the ministry and testimony of Paul and Silas and the quickening of the Holy Spirit, that man's life changed in an instant. The skeptical observation was gone. The facade was removed. The hardness of heart broken. The doors opened. The eyes of his heart able to see the goodness of God in the face of Christ. He was offered Jesus. And he took it. Three conversions. A God-fearer, a slave girl, and a jailer. I want you to hear this as we go in to Easter. God cannot be stopped. His grace cannot be stopped. There is a tenacity to God that is unparalleled. And he uses this tenacity. Listen to me. He uses this tenacity to deliver and to save. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear that. God uses his unparalleled tenacity to deliver and to save. Can you imagine what it would be like if God was tenacious and cruel? Can you imagine what it would be like if God used his tenacity not to deliver and to save? But for cruelty, what would the result be? But the focus of God's tenacity is his glory and our good. And I want to remind you as you pray this week, and as we pray this week, at Easter, we celebrate the climax of God's saving plan. We celebrate the climax of God's tenacity in full view. 
we celebrate the reality that God took on the form of a man. And in his son Jesus, he lived the very life that we were created to live of satisfaction in worshiping God, of obedience to God, though tempted just as you and I are, never did he sin. He lived the life we were created to live and then he laid his life down on that cross to pay for the price, to pay the price for the life that we live instead. And on that cross, Jesus exhausted the righteous wrath of God for sin in our place. And he died and he was laid in a tomb. And three days later, God vindicated Jesus' sacrifice in our place by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand. Jesus' resurrection that we will celebrate at Easter is a sign of God's acceptance of Jesus and a sign of God's victory, his ultimate victory over hard hearts, over evil spirits, and over death itself. Satan, sin, and death have been vanquished by God in the person and work of Jesus. That is what we celebrate at Easter. His tenacity is spent to save the lives of Lydia, the servant girl, the jailer, and people just like you and I. That's what we celebrate, and that's what I want you to remember. And as I pray, I want to say this. You don't have to wait till Easter. You don't have to wait till Easter to experience the reality of God's saving plan. You don't have to wait till next week to listen for the Easter message, to hear the good news of God's grace and to receive it for yourself. This good and gracious and tenacious God extends his grace to you this morning. For those of you who have never placed your faith on the person and work of Jesus Christ, who have never, like that jailer, received the goodness of God's grace, his question should be your question this morning. What must I do to be saved? And Paul's answer in verse 31 is the only answer you ever need to hear. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. There's nothing you need to do, nothing you need to fix, nothing you can do to earn it. It's God's gift of his grace. It's an expression of his love towards you. What you have to do is take it. What you have to do is receive it. What you have to do is actually believe it. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the tenacity of your grace. That it never gives up. There is no opposition or obstacle that can overwhelm it or defeat it. That it's bigger than the hardness of our hearts. It's stronger than the oppression of evil. It's more powerful than death itself. And that your grace, Father, we celebrate, has overcome all three of those things. And I ask, Lord, this morning that you would do what only you can do. That you would open up hearts that are that are hard and closed. That you would open up hearts to hear and to see and to believe and to taste the goodness of your grace in Jesus. Lord, I thank you that we can ask and we can pray that you don't turn anybody away who honestly wants to know you, who honestly wants to be transformed by you. And Father, we ask these things not that we be made much of for any decisions or anything that we do, but that you would be made much of and your glory would be made known. We ask these things in the name of Jesus himself. Amen.